0: A crossroads Hop, isn't it something like that? You know, I worked on that and I thought I was doing pretty well. But uh, what what can I say? Speaking of Pastor Craig, by the way, let me let me just share this. Um, he and Rochelle, a few days before Christmas, as most of us did, we were out doing some Christmas shopping. And they went down the Greenwood area, and uh, they decided to divide and conquer. They went their separate ways. They had their own list of things to purchase. But about an hour into that, well, Rochelle called Craig and said, "You know, there's." couple of presents we need to buy together and so where are you right now? And he said, well honey, to be honest with you, you remember that little jewelry store that we visited a few years ago and that incredible diamond necklace that you fell in love with and said you'd give anything to have that and at the time I just didn't have the money to begin to do it. And, and she began to get all emotional, got choked up, and teary-eyed. And so, so we said, so, "Yes, yes, Craig, I remember." And he said, "Well, honey, I'm in the gun store right across the street." Yeah, <laughs> 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 no, nah, I don't. I don't think that actually happened, but uh, but it could have. It could have. You know, it might have. Let's cut out the nonsense. Get right at it. Would you pray with me, Father? I pray right now that you'll help all of us here to be attentive to your word open to what you would speak to our hearts. And God, especially for me, help me to handle in the right way your word of truth. For your word does, as has been pointed out this morning, set us free. And so, Father, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Your pastor's been more than gracious to me in uh, being a friend and inviting me to come back and uh, preach each year uh, after my retirement from Kingsway. Um, however you may suggest to him that he, he think twice about that particular practice after you hear this morning's sermon I, I had prepared a different sermon and frankly it's a sermon I would, have, um, I would have enjoyed more preaching and chances are you would have enjoyed more hearing but uh, I'm sure uh, Pastor Craig you have this sometimes too in which you just know that's not where the Lord wants you to go And um, so, uh, I don't know, about a month or so ago as I was praying about this, I decided to lay aside the sermon that I had already prepared actually and uh, to speak instead on the subject of counting the cost. Counting the cost. You know, I'm talking about the cost of following Jesus. On numerous occasions during his earthly ministry, Jesus um, said to people, follow me. Matthew Levi, you remember he said to him, the tax collector, he said to him, follow me and be my disciple. But Jesus also made it very clear in his earthly ministry that there's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, to me, it's best illustrated in um, the mission experiences I've had over the years. Uh, we here in America, we really don't understand unless we've had time with people in other parts of the world, how blessed we are, <laughs> and we begin to take things for granted, the freedoms that we have, and the physical blessings that we have. Um, we live in an unprecedented age of um, comfort and affluence, and yet in spite of that, we in America seem obsessed with the, with the whole issues of pain and suffering and personal loss, But that obsession is not true with Christians in much of the world. One of my favorite preachers of today is Francis Chan. Perhaps you've heard him on on, uh, the internet. Perhaps you've read some of his books. Uh, He built a huge megachurch out in California called the Cornerstone Church. And uh, just like I said, one of my favorite preachers. But a few years ago, he he, um, resigned from that ministry there. It was just an amazing thing. He, he left all that behind and he took his whole family and moved them initially to Europe and then they went to Asia as well. And he wanted to go and find out what made the persecuted church tick. How people in so many parts of the world that don't enjoy the things we're enjoying here seem even more committed in their faith than, than the church here in America and uh, he met with several different groups, especially house church pastors. And he was with a group of student uh, house church pastors. And uh, he, he ran across an amazing experience. Here's just a little clip from a sermon he preached upon his return, telling about that experience. Can, can we have that?
1: But, but they, they, they kept questioning me. They go, wait a second, why is it so strange? Why do you want to hear these stories? And I go, okay where I come from it's things are different I go where I come from do you understand that we have these these buildings called churches and we have a bunch of them and you kinda choose which one you attend and 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 I and I said and this was the weirdest thing I said see so some people will they might even attend one and then they realize well the music is better here and they'll switch and these students Start laughing hysterically. I mean, I don't know if this ever happened to anyone else that's been speaking, and you didn't mean to be funny, but everyone laughs, so you just go with it. go yeah, yeah, I'm funny. You know, it was one of those moments where I seriously was not trying to make anyone laugh. I'm going, it's just kind of a weird thing. Like we'll switch. You know, if if if, if the child care is better here, then parents will switch to that church, and they start laughing hysterically at like everything. I go, no, if service times are better, you know, if the speaker is better, and they're loud,, oh, you'll make us raff, you know, and I'm just like, no, I'm not.
0: <laughs> well, I wish we had the time to show you more of that clip, but, but you know, it's kind of painful too, isn't it? You know, sometimes humor is one of those things that um, really makes us see things as, as they, they really are number of years ago, Jan and I were in China and we were privileged to attend a, a conference of house church pastors there. And uh, I got to converse with several of them and I asked uh, one of them if they were praying, if the Christians there were praying for a change in the harsh governmental policies that had driven the church underground in China And this one particular brother responded that he'd never heard a Christian, a Chinese Christian pray for relief. He said they simply assume they'll face opposition. They assume they'll face opposition. I've made a number of trips to Myanmar. used to be called Burma. They have had for many, many years, for decades, a harsh military dictatorship. It's made it very difficult for the church to function there. And yet, the church underground as well as to a certain extent above ground, uh, prospers there. And again, when I've spoken to uh, Bible college or seminary, when I've spoken to a group of pastors, I've been told again and again, keep in mind that when you preach to this group, you'll be speaking, no doubt, to most of these pastors have already spent time in prison because of their faith. One Burmese pastor told me, we assume we'll be persecuted for our faith. That, That just comes with the territory. Let me urge you, if if you're a reader, to uh, get the the biography of Adoniram Judson. He was the first missionary to the Burmese people. Matter of fact, the first missionary from America, period. He was uh, arrested. He was tortured. Um, They did horrendous things to him. Uh, While he was in prison, his wife died of smallpox. His daughter died of smallpox as well. And when he was finally released from prison, he went out in the jungle and he built a jungle hut. He dug his own grave alongside that jungle hut. And for the next 34 years, he he labored there, translating the scripture into the Burmese language. It's the same translation they use to this day, by the way. Yeah, there weren't a whole lot of converts over those 34 years, but there were a few converts. And because of his faithfulness and their faithfulness, millions of Burmese Christians can trace their spiritual heritage back Adoniram Judson. See, folks, I've lived long enough and I have traveled enough, I've read enough stories, I've interviewed enough um, saintly people to be repulsed by any any idea of what's sometimes called the prosperity or the health and wealth gospel that's so popular in our country. It just doesn't jibe with what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if you want to be my follower, you must put aside selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, an instant of execution, and, sh- and, and follow me. Or Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 22, everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Or Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill you. They can only kill your body. This is one of the few instances where I think Jesus might have even been using a little humor. I mean, the worst they can do is kill you, you know? I mean, what's a, the what's a big deal? They, they, they can only kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. And so it is in Hindu India in Buddhist Sri Lanka in um, atheistic China and North Korea and in scores of Islamic countries today, present-day Christians experience discrimination and outright persecution like most of us cannot even begin to imagine. And it won't be long, folks. It won't be long before we see more and more of that here in secularized America as our country as a whole moves further and further away from God. There's a cost to being Christ followers It's time we acknowledge that. Sometimes that cost is very great. So why would anyone choose to follow Jesus, a Jesus who promises more hardship, not less? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul answer that. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now keep in mind, Paul, even when he wrote these words, has been imprisoned, he's been beaten, he's been persecuted for his faith in many different ways. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 16, that's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, for our present troubles are small. I mean, you and I, our our troubles don't begin to compare with his, but he says, our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, don't pay any attention to them, Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now, they'll soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Hallelujah. What a great perspective to have. And that's what the Apostle Paul, that's the perspective he had. He could look back on beatings and imprisonment and deprivations of every sort and yet he could sense his inward being being uh, renewed and being tempered by by that hardship even as he looked forward to what the Lord was preparing for him joys that will last forever and ever now please understand in this morning's sermon I in preparing this message um, there are so many things that I'm going to say that can be misunderstood please please I'm Praying that, uh, that you'll give me the benefit of the doubt in those areas. But please understand I'm not critiquing your church in particular. I'm critiquing the church in America as a whole. And what's become of the church in America today. Because I have preached in hundreds of churches all across America from coast to coast. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, uh, a news junkie. And I'm aware of what's going on in the religious news. And, and it's been my experience that the American church, speaking of the American church, quote unquote, bears less and less resemblance to the Christianity Paul practiced than it has for a long, long time. Our preoccupation in the church with entertainment, our preoccupation with with ease, our desire not to offend anyone, our desire to be politically correct so that people will come to our church instead of the one down the street has often caused the American church to soft-pedal Jesus' teachings about discipleship. And those teachings are pretty strong teachings, folks. But if the world is going to be won to Christ, there must be a recommitment to what I would call radical discipleship. And what better time to make a recommitment to that than right now as we enter into the new year of 2019. We look back over where we've been this past year and we read what God's word teaches the new year should hold in store and we commit ourselves to that. So let me just make three or four points. First of all, Count the cost. Count the cost. Over in Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25, here's what we read. Matter of fact, I'm gonna would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I, I often do this. We we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible, and it is his truth that is spoken through the Bible. And so let's give proper respect to the reading of God's Word today. This is Luke 14, beginning with verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. <clears throat> He turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So, verse 3, 33, get this. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Wow. May God bless the reading of his word. Be seated, won't you please? Now if anyone knew anything about counting the cost, it was Jesus, was it not? Jesus who came to this earth, born in Bethlehem stable, that we've just celebrated, 33 years upon this earth, and then... We come to that final week is what we call it. And Luke 9 in verse 51 says, as the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, Jesus knew what awaited him there. He already knew it. Before his return to heaven, he knew what he was going to experience. He, it was for this purpose he had come after all. For 33 years, he's been moving toward this. He, he already knew about the betrayal. He already knew about the denials. He, he already knew about the beatings. He already knew about the agony. He already knew about the suffering. He knew about the crucifixion itself where he would die for all the sins of all mankind of all the ages. He even anticipated, I believe, what it would be like And to me, the most horrendous thing in the Bible is the very Son of God, God of gods, throughout eternity, the Word who had become flesh and dwelt among us as He became sin on our behalf and as a result was separated from God the Father. And that separation would cause Him to cry out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? No, you can't. I can't either. And yet He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then in that very same chapter he spoke to the disciples about the high cost of following him. Now most church leaders, myself included, have always been in the business of recruiting as many people as possible to become followers of Jesus. After all, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But Jesus' approach was a little different. Have you ever noticed that? Um, Jesus seemed to spend a lot of time dissuading people from following you, More and more the church in America is placing very little emphasis on the cost of discipleship. Uh, discipleship is sort of a hot-button word right now, but but as far as really preaching and practicing discipleship, there's less and less. The church in America seems to feel the need to reinvent itself every few years. And I've been around long enough to see several of those reinventions, and, and uh, I'll... I'll, I'll I'll give credit to him, credit's due. I think most of those reinventions are well-intentioned. Um, but the more recent ones, starting, I would say, with the emergent church movement and to a certain extent the seeker-focused movement, have shared the common core values of not offending anyone. And while well-intentioned, have often resulted in the soft-peddling, if not the total elimination of the teaching on the cost of discipleship. And thus the church in America, though on Sunday morning the numbers may be bigger and bigger, the difference being made in society seems to be less and less. Shortly before my retirement at Kingsway, I preached a pretty pointed sermon on uh, the responsibility of every Christian to be involved in ministry. You know the Bible teaches that every born-again child of God is uh, given spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. And it's only as every believer is practicing their spiritual gifts that the church becomes all that it should be. And so I was making that point that morning and that if you weren't using your spiritual gifts, if you weren't serving in the church, if you weren't more than just a spectator in the church, then you were outside the will of God and you needed to you needed to repent of that. Well, there was this fellow came up to me afterwards. He was a visitor there that day. He explained that he came from a, a, a well-known megachurch in another city, actually another state. And he said to me, he said, you know, our pastor would never preach a sermon like that because he would be afraid that people would be offended and would never come back. Well, Jesus didn't seem to have that same concern, did he? It may seem that Jesus was discouraging people from following him, but in reality, it's his desire for all people to follow him, but he wants them to know what they're doing. He wants them to count the cost so that once they do follow him, they will never turn back. And so he clearly spells out here in Luke 9 what's involved. Let me, let me mention just um, uh, three of those specific costs. I wish we had the time to develop each of them. We don't, but at least I can mention them and perhaps you can look further into them. There's the cost of no earthly security. Here in uh, chapter 9 of Luke, verses 57 and, and uh, 58... It says, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What an amazing thing. When Jesus stepped off the throne of glory to come to this sin cursed earth, he left behind his sovereignty for servanthood, he exchanged his wealth for poverty. What irony. The king of the universe. The king of the universe didn't have a place to call home. Think about that. I mean Jesus uh, had no earthly security. He had to be loaned accommodation wherever he went. By friends or loved ones. He he had to borrow a coin just to teach a parable. Jesus uh, borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And thus fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And when he died he was buried in a what? A a borrowed tomb. (laughs) Now, he didn't need it very long, so it wasn't that big a deal, see? But, but, uh, but he had nothing. He had nothing but a robe. And um, the Roman soldiers even gambled that way. And when we follow Jesus, we're not promised earthly security, folks. Oh, we have security, but it's not found in earthly things. And when you choose to follow Christ, it could cost you everything. It could cost you everything. There's also the cost of no earthly ties. There in verses 59 and 60, he said to another person, come, follow me. And the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Now, this part of the conversation really shocks a lot of people, horrifies some people. As Jesus calls this man to be his disciple, but when the man begs to first go home and bury his dad, Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own dead. (laughs) The uh, New Living Translation that I'm using here actually Um, interprets rather than translating by adding the word spiritually, the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Many people read into this text the idea that the man's father wasn't dead yet. He was suggesting maybe his dad was uh, up in age and let me go home, take care of dad whenever he dies, then, then I'll come and follow you. Sounds like, um, you know, the sort of thing that a lot of us would say today. Um, But regardless of the by the way, I, I I tend to agree with that interpretation, but for whatever that's worth, but, but um, regardless of your interpretation, Jesus makes it clear that if you're going to follow him, then the claims of the kingdom come first before anyone and anything else. Elsewhere, Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must love me more than your own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, more than your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple Now, he's not calling us to dishonor our parents. The same Bible out of which we quote that particular verse is is the same Bible that teaches us that we're to honor father and mother. That same Bible teaches us that that we are to, to care for and provide for our children. So he's not calling for that, but what he is saying that he's to come first. That's it. That's the bottom line. And indeed, many have had to make that choice. Jesus says to leave behind earthly ties to follow him. People tell me all the time what they would do, you know, when this or that takes place someday. Well, it's not a matter of someday. If God's calling you to do something today, do it today. Let him take care of all the rest. The follower of Jesus is to have no earthly ties that supersede doing his will. Then just one more thing, not that there aren't plenty of others, but one other for today, the cost, there's the cost of no earthly distractions, no earthly distractions. Again, there in chapter nine, in verses 61 and 62, another said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, that sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, in even our military, you know, going off to serve overseas, ordinarily get at least a short leave to go home and say goodbye to family and friends. But again, Jesus spells out the cost. Sir, if you've already declared that you're ready to follow me, you have picked up the plow. Now, if you put it back down, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't look back. Peter, James, and John. When Jesus called them alongside the Sea of Galilee to become fishers of men, what did they do? They immediately laid down their nets and they followed Jesus. Think about that. Walking away from your job, your career, everything else. But that's what they did. But think about others who did look back. People um, like Lot's wife and Judas Iscariot and Demas and others. Jesus put it another way in the text that we read earlier over in chapter 14, verses 28 and following. He said, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you and they would say, there's the person who started this building and couldn't afford to finish it. John Stott is a great British preacher. He wrote these, uh, these words that are very convicting, and disturbing to me. He writes, thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The people, or he says, the the result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder, Stott writes, no wonder cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Oh, you see, the true follower of Jesus allows no earthly distractions. We don't look back for anything or anyone. So, fact is, discipleship often leads to hardship. And the Bible never minimizes hardship. Never. It acknowledges it. But it also teaches the benefit of it when it grows, when it leads to greater faith and greater trust. Yes, greater trust in the ultimate victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Please understand, today's message is not a call to doubt, it's a call to affirm, it's not a call to retreat, it's a call to advance the kingdom, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not a call to defeat, it's a call to victory, but as such, it's not a call to ease, it is not. It's often a call to hardship, as a matter of fact, Paul pointedly said in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I began with stories of persecution, especially because of my involvement in missions. Through the years, I have so many more stories. I work with a group uh, called Christian Arabic Services. Uh, We work primarily in Egypt. Everything's headquartered out of Cairo, but also work across northern Africa and through the Middle East as well. And it's a ministry to evangelize uh, the lost and to disciple the saved and and, uh, um, it's a great ministry operating under very difficult circumstances. One of our teams was down in the south of Sudan. Um, It was actually 11 years ago. And uh, during their time there, a tribal leader among the people there gave his life to Christ, a man with great influence. And because of his great influence, the Islamic militants wanted to break him immediately, and so they took him captive, they tortured him, they tried to get him to recant his faith, he refused, and as a final desperate effort to get him to recant, they took a cauldron full of boiling oil, and they forced his hands down into the boiling oil, and literally fried away his hands. I I have pictures, I'm not going to show them to you, they're too grotesque, but but uh, he remained faithful. Uh, Cass or Christian Arabic Services had no contact with him for 11 years. And this past summer, this past summer, this brother showed up in Cairo at the Cash headquarters there. But he didn't come alone. He came with 41 family members he had personally led to Christ in the interim. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And if you, if you're a news buff like I am, you probably have already read this story of Alan Chow, 26 years old, just in the headlines within the last month. He had a burden for people in the most isolated tribe in the world on a little island off the coast of India called North Sentinel Island. And he felt called to the Lord to go there and evangelize these people. And he went there the first time and they, they drove him away with spears and arrows. But he felt it was God's will for him to go back and so he returned a second time and the second trip there, going there to tell them of the love of Jesus, he was martyred by bow and arrow. My guess is though the entire story has yet to be told and that his death will be the doorway to the salvation of those people in that isolated tribe, much as Jim Elliot's martyrdom and that of his fellow workers led, to the, door, led the, uh, to the opening of the door to the salvation of the Aka Indians in South America. I uh, was telling Craig, I, I was reading just this past week, a, a hero from the Assembly of God tradition, J.W. Tucker. I didn't know his whole story, but about his martyrdom in the Congo, and how his blood, as his body was thrown into the river, flowed among those nations there in Central Africa, and how thousands upon thousands of people now have come to know Christ because of his martyrdom there well you may not be called to evangelize a primitive people off the coast of India as Alan Chow was you may not be called to go and preach the gospel among Islamic extremists as my brother from the south of Sudan is, you may not even be called to martyrdom so that unreached people groups might be reached but you and I have been called you and I have been called we have been called to follow Jesus and with that in mind Let me close by asking you to listen to these powerful words. I'd love to attribute them to the author. I do not know the author. But listen, won't you please? As he wrote, I am a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the word are my weapons of warfare. I've been taught by the Holy Spirit. I've been trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I'm a volunteer in this army, and I'm enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army at the Lord's coming or die in this army, but I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I am there. He can use me because I am there. I am a soldier, I'm not a baby. I don't have to be pampered, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up, for I am a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, lure me. I am a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I am in place saluting my king obeying his orders praising his name and building his kingdom no one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards candy or handouts to keep me coming I do not need to be cuddled, cradled cared for or catered to I am committed I cannot have my feelings hurt badly enough to turn me around I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit when Jesus called me into this army I had nothing and if I end up with nothing I still come out even. I will win. My God will supply all my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. Devils cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Government cannot silence me. And hell cannot handle me. No. No. I am a soldier. I am a soldier, and even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from the battlefield, he will promote me to a captain. I am a soldier in the army, and I am marching, claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier, marching heaven-bound. Here I stand. Will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? All of you, will you stand with me for a moment? But well, when, when we have that attitude and understand and embrace the teachings about costly discipleship in today's text, then we will take the world for Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? And as we bow, I want to tell you, we're going to approach this, this time of decision a little differently than usual. I'm going to pray for all of us, and we're going to have, have a quiet interlude of music. And uh, we're going to open the front of this platform up to um, an old-time altar, okay? And if this morning maybe uh, God's Word has exposed some area of your life in which you realize that you've not been willing to pay the price some area of your life in which you realize that there are things that you've held uh, as more precious and more dear to you than following Jesus. And you want to make this a day of saying... uh, I want to put Jesus in his rightful place. I want to praise him, worship him, lift him up in my life and all that I do and all that I say. If there's areas of your life in which you need to repent of failure to really honor the Lord as you should, I want to invite you, I even want to urge you just to come to the front. This platform makes a perfect altar. <clears throat> You can kneel down before the Lord, you can fall down prostrate before the Lord, if you'd like, the Bible teaches that. You can just come and stand before the Lord, the Lord would honor that. And uh, after a few moments, and after those responded to, seemingly feel convicted to, or want to, I'm gonna ask Pastor Craig to pray over uh, all of us. But today, if um, maybe for the first time you've counted the cost, but you're willing to go all in. Give your life to Jesus. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Even understanding that following Him will not always be easy and sometimes will be very difficult. I want to urge you to walk one of these aisles and give your hand to your pastor, but give your heart to Jesus today. Nothing could be more special, no way better than to close out the old year with the greatest decision of all and opening up the new year with that same decision. Now would you pray with me, Father?